Section 6 of The Machine That Saved the World by Murray Leinster. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Chad Jackson. The communicator's standby light flickered steadily. Sergeant Bellows adjusted a knob on the generator. The communicator's standby flicker changed in amplitude. Bellows turned the knob back. He adjusted another control. The standby light wavered crazily. Graves said nervously, I think I see. You are trying to make this communicator react as Betsy did. When it does, you will consider that your generator is creating a wave like the broadcast from nowhere. Yeah, said Bellows, but it's the best I can do. He worked the generator controls with infinite care. Once the communicator's standby light approached sine wave modulation, he hastily shifted away from the settings which caused it. He muttered, close. Then suddenly, the communicator's lamp began to waver in an extraordinary, hysterical fashion. Sergeant Bellows turned down the volume swiftly. He wiped the sweat off his forehead. I, I think I got the trick, he said heavily. It's a hell of a wave type. Are you guys game to feed it into this communicator's output amplifier? I have six sets of cold chills running up and down my spine, said Leggy. I think you should proceed. Howell said angrily, It's got to be tried, hasn't it? It's got to be tried, acknowledged Sergeant Bellows. He shifted the generator's cable from the communicator's input to the feed-in for the pre-amplified signal. The communicator's screen went dark. It no longer received a simulated broadcast signal. It was now signaling, calling. But the instant the new signal started out, the standby light flickered horribly. Sergeant Bellows grimly plugged in other machines. To the three scientists, they looked like duplicates of Gus and Al, to closed-circuit relationship with Betsy's twin. The standby light calmed. Now we test, he said grimly. Gotta watch. Lucky extended his wrist. Watch it, said Sergeant Bellows. He stepped up to the output. My watch has stopped, said Lucky through white lips. Graves looked at his own watch. He shook it and held it to his ear. He looked sick. Howell growled and looked at his own. That wave stops watches, he admitted unwillingly. But not Mahan machines easy, said Sergeant Bellews heavily, and not us. There was almost three micro-micro watts going out then. That's three millionths of a millionth of an ampere second at one volt. We... His voice stopped as if with a click. The screen of Betsy's factory twin communicator lighted up. A man's face peered out of it. He was bearded, and they could not see his costume, but he was frightened. What? What is this? cried his voice shrilly from the speakers. Sergeant Bellew said very sharply, Hey, you ain't the guy we've been talking to. The screen went dark. Sergeant Bellows put his hand over the microphone opening. He turned fiercely upon the rest. Look, he snapped. We were broadcasting their trick wave, the wave they used to talk to us, and they picked it up. But they weren't expecting it. They were set to pick up the wave they told us to transmit. See? That guy will come back. He's got to. So we got to play along. He'll want to find out if we got wise and won't broadcast ourselves to death. If he finds out we know what we're doing, they'll parachute a transmitter down on us before we can do it to him. Back me up. Get set. He removed his hand from the microphone. Colin 2180, he chattered urgently, calling the guy that just contacted us. Come in, 2180. You're not the guy we've been talking to, but come in. Come in, 2180. Howell said stridently, but if that's 2180, how did we parachute? 
Lesky clapped a hand over his mouth with a fierceness surprising in so small a man. He whispered desperately into Howell's ear. Graves absurdly began to bite his nails, staring at the communicator screen. Sergeant Bellows continued his calling even more urgently. His voice echoed peculiarly in the rehab shop. It seemed suddenly a place of resonant echoes. All the waiting, repaired, or to be rehabilitated machines appeared to listen with interest while Sergeant Bellows called. Come in, 2180. We've been trying to reach you for a couple of weeks. We got somebody else instead of you, and they've been talking to us, and they say that they're 3020 instead of 2180, but we've got to contact you. They don't know anything about that germ that's going to mutate and bump us off. It's ancient history to them. We've got to reach you. Come in, 2180. The flickering yellow lights of the machines wavered as if all the quasi-living machines were listening absorbedly. The rehab shop was full of shadows, and Sergeant Bellows sat before the dark screen communicator with sweat on his face, calling cajolingly to nothingness to come in. After five minutes, the screen grew abruptly bright again. The brisk, raceless broadcaster of the earlier broadcast, not the bearded man, came back. He forced a smile. Ah, 1972, at last you reach us. But we did not hope you could make your transmitters so soon. We tried to analyze your wave, says Sergeant Bellows, with every appearance of feverish relief, but we only got it approximate. We tried calling back with what we got, and we got through time all right, but we contacted some guys in 3020 instead of you. We need to talk to you. Can you give me the stuff about that bug that's going to wipe out half of us? Quick, I got a recorder going. The completely uncharacterizable man on the screen forced a second smile. He held something to his ear. It would be a tiny sound receiver. Obviously, the contact in time or place, or nowhere, was being viewed by others than the one man who appeared. He was receiving instructions. Ah, he said brightly, but now that you have the contact, you will not lose it again. Leave your controls where they are, and our learned men will tell your learned men all that they need to know. But 3020? You contacted 3020? That is not in our records of your time. He listened again to the thing at his car. His expression became suddenly suspicious, as if someone had ordered that, as well as the words which came next. We do not understand how you could contact a time a thousand years beyond us. It is possible that you attempt a joke. A, a kid, as you would say. Sergeant Bellows beamed into the screen, which so remarkably functioned as a transmitting eye also. Hell, he said cordially, you know we wouldn't kid you. You or our great-great-great-grandchildren, we depend on you. We got to get you to tell us how not to get wiped out. In 3020, the whole business is forgotten. It's a thousand years old to them, but they're passing back some swell machinery. He turned his head as if listening to something the microphone could not pick up. But he looked appealingly at Lecky. Lecky nodded and moved towards the communicator. Look, said Sergeant Bellows into the screen. Here's Doc Lecky, one of our top guys. You talk to him. He gave his seat to Lecky. Out of range of the communicator, he mopped his face. His shirt was soaked through by the sweat produced by the stress of the past few minutes. He shivered violently and then clamped his teeth and fumbled out sheets of paper. He beckoned to Graves. Graves came. We, we got to give him a doctored circuit, whispered Sergeant Bellows desperately, and it's got to be good and quick. Graves bent over the paper on which the sergeant dripped sweat. The sergeant murmured through now chattering teeth what had to be devised and at once. It must be the circuit diagram for a transmitter to be given to the man whose face filled the screen. The transmitter must be of at least 20 kilowatt power. It must be such a circuit as nobody had ever seen before. It must be convincing. It should appear to radiate impossibility 
or to destroy energy without radiation, but it must actually produce a broadcast signal of this exotic type. Here the sergeant described with shaky precision the exact constants of the wave to be generated, and the broadcaster from nowhere must not be able to deduce those constants or that wave type from the diagram until he had built the transmitter and tried it. I know it can't be done, said the sergeant desperately. I know it can't, but it's got to be, or they'll parachute a transmitter down on us, sure. Graves smiled a quick and nervous smile. He began to sketch a circuit. It was a wonderful thing. It was the product of much ingenuity and meditation. It had been devised, by himself, as a brain teaser for the amusement of other high-level scientific brains. Mathematicians zestfully contrive problems to stump each other. Specialists in the higher branches of electronics sometimes present each other with diagram circuits which pretend to achieve the impossible. The problem is to find the hidden flaw. Graves deftly outlined his circuit and began to fill in the details. Ostensibly, it was a circuit which consumed energy and produced nothing, not even heat. In a sense, it was the exact opposite of a perpetual motion scheme, which pretends to get energy from nowhere. This circuit pretended to radiate energy to nowhere, and yet to get rid of it. Presently, Lucky could be heard expostulating gently. But of course we are willing to give you the circuit by which we communicate with the year 3020? Naturally. But it seems strange that you suspect us. After all, if you do not tell us how to meet the danger your broadcasts have told of, you will never be born. Sergeant Bellows mopped his face and moved into the screen's field of vision. Doc, he said, laying a hand on Lecky's arm. Doc Graves is sketching what they want right now. You want to come show it, Doc? Graves took Lecky's place. He spread out the diagram, finishing it as he talked. His nervous, faint smile appeared as the mannerism of embarrassment it was. There can be no radiation from a coil shaped like this, he said embarrassedly, because of the Werner principle. Yet on examination, input to the transistor series involves energy must flow, and when this coil, his voice flowed on. He explained a puzzle, presenting it diffidently as he had presented it to the other men in his own field. Then he had been playing for fun. Now he played for perhaps the highest stakes that could be imagined. He completed his diagram and, smiling nervously, held it up to the communicator screen. It was instantly transmitted, of course, to nowhere, which was most appropriate because it pretended to be the diagram of a circuit sending radiation to the same place. The face on the screen twitched now. The hand with the tiny earphone was always at the ear of the man on the screen, so that he plainly did not speak one word without high authority. We will examine this, he said. His voice was a full two tones higher than it had been. If you had been truthful, we will give you the information you wish. Click! The screen went dark. Lecky let out his breath. Sergeant Bellows threw off the transmission switch. He began to shake. Howell said indignantly, When I make a mistake, I admit it. The broadcast isn't from the future. If it hadn't been a lie, he'd have known that he'd had to tell us what we wanted to know. He couldn't hold us up for terms. If he let us die, he wouldn't exist. Y yeah, said Sergeant Bellows. What I'm wondering is, did we fool him? Oh, yes, Graves said with diffident confidence. I don't know but three men in the world who could find the flaw in that circuit. He smiled faintly. But it radiates all the energy that's fed into it. He turned to Sergeant Bellows. You gave me the constants of a wave you wanted it to radiate. I fixed it. It will. But why that special type, that special wave? Sergeant Bellows pulled himself together. Because, he said grimly, that was the wave they wanted us to broadcast. What I'm hoping is that you gave them a transmitter to do exactly the same thing as the one they designed for us. 
If they're fooled, they'll broadcast the wave they told us to broadcast. If it busts machines, it'll bust their machines. If it stops all dynamic systems dead, including men, they'll be stopped dead too. Then he looked from one to another of the three scientists, each one reacting in his own special way. Personally, said Sergeant Bellows doggedly, I'm going to have a can of beer. Who will join me? The world wagged on. The automatic monitors and communication center reported that another broadcast had been received by Betsy and undoubtedly unscrambled by Al and Gus working as a team. The reporter broadcast was, of course, an interception of the two-way talk from the rehab shop. The tall young lieutenant, working with his eyes kept conscientiously shut, extracted the tapes and loaded them in a top-security briefcase. A second courier took off for Washington with them. There a certified, properly cleared Major General had them run off and saw and heard every word of the conversation between the rehab shop and nowhere. He howled with wrath. Sergeant Bellows went into the guardhouse while plane loads of interrogating officers flew from Washington. Howland, Graves, and Lucky were under strict guard until they could be asked some thousands of variations of the question, Why did you do it? The high brass quivered with fury. They did not accept decisions made at non-commissioned officer level. Communication with their great-great-great-grandchildren, they considered, should have been begun with proper authority and under high-ranking auspices. They commanded that 2180 should immediately be recontacted and properly authorized and good-faith conference begun all over again. The only trouble was they could get no reply. The dither was terrific and the tumult frantic. When, moreover, even Betsy remained silent, and Alan Gus had nothing to unscramble, the high brass built up explosive indignation. But it was confined to top security levels. The world outside the Pentagon knew nothing. Even at Research Installation 83, very, very few persons had the least idea what had taken place. The sun shone blandly upon manicured lawns, and the officers' children played vociferously, and washing machines laundered diapers with beautiful efficiency, and vacuum cleaners and Mahon-modified jeeps performed their functions with the air of enthusiastic contentment. It seemed that a golden age approached. It did. There were machines which were not merely possessions. Mahon-modified machines acquired reflections of the habits of the families which used them. An electric icebox acted as if it took an interest in its work. A vacuum cleaner seemed uncomfortable if it did not perform its task to perfection. It would seem as absurd to exchange an old, habituated family convenience as to exchange a member of the family itself. Presently, there would be washing machines cherished for their seemingly knowledge of family member individual preferences, and personal flyers respected for their conscientiousness, and one would relievedly allow an adolescent to drive a car if it were one of proven experience and sagacity. The life of an ordinary person would be enormously enriched. A Mahon modified machine would not even wear out. It took care of its own lubrication and upkeep, giving notice of its needs by the behavior of its standby lamp. When parts needed replacement, one would feel concern rather than irritation. There would be a personal relationship with the machines which so faithfully reflected one's personality. And the machines would always, always, always act towards humans according to the golden rule. But meanwhile, the rehab shop was taken over by officers of rank. They tried frantically to resume the communication that had been broken off. Suspecting the Sergeant Bellows had shifted controls, they essayed to shift them back. The communicator, which was Betsy's factory twin, went into sine wave standby modulation and suddenly smoked all over and was wrecked. The wave generator went into hysterics and produced nothing whatsoever. Then there was nothing to do 
but pull Sergeant Bellows out of the clink and order him to do the whole business over again. I can't, said Sergeant Bellows indignantly. It can't be done. Those guys are busy building a transmitter, according to the diagram Doc Graves gave them. They won't pay no attention to anything until they've tried to chat with their great-great-great-grandchildren in 3020. They were phonies anyhow, pretending to be in 2180 and not knowing what Mahon units could do. Lucky and Graves and Howell were even less satisfactory. They couldn't pretend even to try what the questioning teams from the Pentagon wanted them to do. And Betsy remained silent, receiving nothing, and Gus and Al waited meditatively for something to unscramble, and nothing turned up. And then, at 3 p.m. Greenwich Mean Time, on August 9, 1972, nearly every operating communicator in the fringe of the free nations around the territory of the Union of Communist Republics, all communicators blew out. There are only four men in the world who really knew why. Sergeant Bellows and Lickey and Graves and Howell. They knew that somewhere behind the Iron Curtain, a 20-kilowatt transmitter had been turned on. It produced a wave of the type and with the characteristics that would have been produced by a transmitter built from the diagram sent through by Petsy and Al and Gus for people in the United States to build. Obviously, it had been built from Graves' diagram broadcast to somewhere else and then broadcast what the United States had been urged to broadcast. It blew itself out instantly, of course. The wave it produced would stop any dynamic system at once, including its own. But it hit Stockholm, and traffic jammed as the dynamic systems of cars in operation were destroyed. In Gibraltar, the signal systems of the rock went dead. All around the fringe of armed communist republics, machines stopped and communications ended, and very many persons with heart conditions died very quickly. Because their dynamic systems were least stable. But healthy people, like the Mahon modified machines, had great resistance outside the Iron Curtain. There was, though, almost a vacuum of news and mechanical operations at the rim of a nearly perfect circle some 4,000 miles in diameter, whose center was in a Compub research installation. It was very bad. Such a panic as had never been known before swept the free world. Some mysterious weapon, it was felt, had been used to cripple those who would resist invasion, and the Compub armed forces would shortly be on the march, and Armageddon was at hand the free world prepared to die fighting. But war did not come. Nothing happened at all. In three days, there were sketchy communications almost everywhere outside the monstrous circle of silence. But nothing came out of that circle. Nothing. In two weeks, exploring parties cautiously crossed the barbed wire frontier fences to find out what had happened. Those who went farthest came back shaken and sick. There were survivors in the compubs, of course, especially near the fringes of the circle. There were some millions of survivors, but there was no longer a nation to be called the Union of Communist Republics. There were only frightened, starving people trudging blindly away from the cities that were charnel houses and machines that would not run and trees and crops and grasses that were stark dead where they stood. It would be a long time before anybody would want to cross those lifeless plains and enter the places which had been swarming hives of homes and people. And presently, of course, Sergeant Bellows was led out of the guardhouse. He could not be charged with any crime, nor could Graves, nor Leckie, nor Howell. They were asked, confidentially, to keep their mouths shut, which they would have done anyhow. And Sergeant Bellows was asked with reluctant respectfulness just what he thought had really happened. Some guys got too smart, he said, fuming. A guy that'll broadcast a wave that'll wreck machines? I haven't got any kind of use for him. Damn it, when the machine treats you according to the golden rule, you ought to treat it the same way. There were other also respectful questions. 
How the hell would I know? demanded Sergeant Bellows wrathfully. It could have been that we did make contact with 2180, and they were smart and told the comp ups to try out what we told them, but I don't believe it. It could have been a kind of monster from some other planet wanting us wiped out, but he learned him a lesson if he did. And of course, it could have been the comp ups themselves trying to fool us into committing suicide so they'd, uh, inherit the earth. I wouldn't know, but I bet there ain't any more broadcasts from nowhere. He was allowed to return to the rehab shop, and the flickering standby lights of many Mahon-modified machines seemed to glow more warmly as he moved among them. And he was right about there not being any more broadcasts from nowhere. There weren't. Not ever. The End End of Section 6 Recording by Chad Jackson End of The Machine That Saved the World by Murray Leinster